Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Welcome to part two of our four-part series, The Greatest Hits of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred of 2022, and this is part two. The four parts include the top 10 most listened to segments that ran last year. In part one last week, we talked about tomatoes, and that included choosing the easiest to grow varieties, pruning tomato flowers, the best tomatoes for containers, and battling diseases. And one in particular, blossom end rot. If you're a backyard tomato grower, go back and listen to episode 248 for lots of great tips on growing tomatoes. This time around, we're talking with Emily Murphy. She's the author of the book, Grow Now, and she'll be explaining how keeping your soil undisturbed as much as possible can be applied to your raised beds and container plants. And this goes way beyond no-till gardening. She calls it no-dig gardening. And she talks about a way to build up your soil without having to purchase bags or yards of potting mix. She calls it lasagna gardening. But first, we present the most listened-to segment in the Garden Basics podcast last year. In fact, it's the all-time leader in listenership as we enter our fourth year of production. It's all about growing berries. We talk with master gardener and accomplished home blackberry, boysenberry, and raspberry grower Pam Bone. She has lots of good tips for growing these tasty, healthy treats. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. We're at the house of Master Gardener Pam Bone here in Sacramento County, and she loves raspberries, and you ought to see her raspberry garden. So today we're going to talk some raspberry basics and Pam, this is a rather phenomenal stretch of raspberries you have here. It looks to be about 25 feet long and about uh, 8 feet deep. But what I like is that you have incorporated rows between the uh, raspberries so that you never have to reach more than uh, two and a half feet to pick the berries. So that was smart thinking of putting the rows that you can walk on to be able to reach. That is really critical, actually. It's really difficult. Otherwise, uh, you don't get into the middle to harvest. It's hard for pruning later on. It's hard for pest control. It's really important. So what we did is we uh, have some raised beds. Uh, they originally were... Uh, Two by sixes. They've sort of disintegrated over the years, but, uh, but the soil has built up. And, and then between those raised beds, then we put down a lot of mulch. And over the years, it's raised up as well. And so what we have is, uh, pathways throughout the whole area and, uh, you can get, you can reach and, and pick and harvest and it's really easy to get to it and it makes it, uh, a lot easier than a big solid block. Uh, and that is really important. How adaptable are raspberries to the United States? Are there zone limitations? Well, some people would tell you that they can't grow raspberries in Sacramento, that they have a really horrible time. And we've been growing raspberries here at our house for practically the whole time we've lived here, which is nearly 42 years. And there are certain varieties for certain locations. So you have to know what will do well here. You also have to know kind of 
location they require too. How much sun can they take? You know, you have to have sun in order to produce the berry itself. But um, here in our area, we have been planting Heritage and Oregon 1030. And those are varieties that are adapted to the heat. And the Heritage variety is still available everywhere. My daughter grows Heritage in uh, Washington, in Pullman, Washington. So these are uh, what we call the fall bearers or ever bearers. And and they are a little bit different variety than uh, the kind that you put up on a trellis and all, which actually they're much easier to prune and, and that. So, yes, just uh, go to your local cooperative extension or your nursery and find out what varieties are adapted to your area and what are their growth habit and do you want that kind of growth habit? How much work are you willing to do with uh, training them and pruning them and everything? So uh, we've adapted very well here and produce huge crops of berries. If you look at the picture that's with today's episode of Pam's Raspberry Bed, you, you see a lot of T-posts sticking up with a lot of wires. And judging by the heights of the wires, it looks like these raspberries get maybe six feet tall. Oh, yes, definitely. They will grow at least that far. Um, and then, in fact, sort of hang over. So I'd say they might even be seven feet tall. They grow beautifully in our area in the location that we have and very vigorously. And we found that this system maintains them without having to do a huge trellis system because what these are, uh, they are pruned down, not to the ground, but to basically brown sticks in the um uh, winter months. And then the new spring growth comes up and then it keeps growing and then new growth comes up from the uh, base uh, to produce a fall crop. What we found is that uh, it's almost like creating a little playpen for them. All you really need are wires that go around just to hold the berries inside so that they'll be remain upright. So all we do here is you just come on over here, uh, Fred, and you just move the berries as they grow into the wires and then they're just held inside. And so we've got a center wire here, too, just to, so they won't flop. And it's a it's a really ideal system. Uh, we found it works really, really well for this type of um, everbear or fallbearer raspberry. What's the spacing on these plants? Well, what were, what was the spacing on the plant? Originally, and what is it now? <laughs> yeah, right. Right now, they're probably, my husband just went and uh, we harvest a lot of plants that come up in between the rows. And we have another little nursery area that's too much shade for very much berry production. So we then harvest and, and we place plants that die out. And I would say they're probably about maybe a foot apart uh, or so. They probably started out back in the day about two feet apart. But uh, no, this this is a block system. It's okay for them to be a little bit crowded. But you can see there's some areas that are a little bit op more open and other areas that uh, it's a little bit uh, more compact and, and that. So I don't think you can really mess up with this system at all. And they can be fairly uh, close together. Remember, raspberries send up nice little new plants all over the place. And so if you space them far apart, they're going to fill in on their own anyhow, so you don't have to uh, crowd them when you first start. This is being irrigated by a drip irrigation system. Yes. You have lines of quarter-inch tubing. It looks like the emitters are, are spaced at 8 or 12 inches apart, and uh, the lines themselves are maybe a foot apart each to ensure um, equal uh, soaking of the soil. Are, are raspberries a thirsty plant? They are. Um, they do need 
even watering regular watering. And we did find out kind of the hard way. We've always uh, used a drip irrigation system, but back in the old day, before they had pressure compensating uh, inline emitters, uh, we had uh, this laser tubing and it just really produced a lot of water and we wanted to be more efficient. And so even though it was on a drip system, we wanted to change to these uh, new lines. And we found out we've got to put a lot more of these in here because these plants are thirstier than we thought. And that laser tubing was putting out a lot more water. Luckily, it puts that out very efficiently. But yes, I would say uh, we do water these once a week. And but when we do, they may have to run for uh, four to six hours at a time, depending on the heat and how hot it gets in the summertime here or what kind of a hot spell we're having or uh, whatever. We may then uh, turn it on twice a week and just but not run it quite as long. So I adjust it. But right now it's set for uh, once a week and I believe it's on for four hours. All right. It's springtime when we're recording right. this. So those right. are would be spring hours of irrigation. Exactly. Right. And we increase it. What we want to do is increase the amount of water that is put on at any one time. So we're not doing any shallow irrigation. Uh, these roots are not extremely deep at all, uh, not like a fruit tree or anything, but uh, you do want to wet the soil down at least a foot to 18 inches uh, and keep it moist. And we mulch. Everything is mulched, 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 and a lot of compost over the top as a top dressing to save water, to keep the water uh, into the soil. Try to be as energy and water efficient as we possibly can. But berries, I will say, just like any fruit crop in your landscape, if you really have to save water because you're in a drought or, or whatever, then get rid of your lawn because you can't get rid of your fruit trees. And unfortunately, fruit trees, berries and other things like that take just about as much water as a lawn, if not more. But look at what you're getting out of it. You can eat the berries. It's kind of hard to eat grass. That's exactly right. So we just keep reducing the lawn if we feel like we need to save water. With all the compost and mulch you're using, what sort of fertilizer regimen do you need for raspberries? Well, actually, uh, we don't have to do much of anything, but once a year in the spring, we do uh, over top dress with uh, usually something high in nitrogen, just like all fruit. Uh, of all sorts, and we grow a lot of fruits in our landscape, uh, they need nitrogen to grow and to produce fruit. People think, oh, you need phosphorus and potassium. But, you know, we've done a lot of soil testing in our area. And I worked for the Cooperative Extension for many years and saw a lot of soil tests come by. And uh, for the most part, uh, we don't see a lot of phosphorus and potassium deficiencies in our woody plants and our fruit trees. Our berries, they might need a little bit more because they don't have as extensive as a root system. So what I usually generally do is just buy something that is an all-purpose, a higher-in-nitrogen fertilizer. As long as it doesn't have any kind of a weed killer in it, lawn fertilizer works just just as well. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of good like starter lawn fertilizers that take their time to break down and can feed the plants for a, a much longer period of time. And actually, lawn fertilizers are, are a fairly good choice for a lot of uh, massive plantings like raspberries here. And also, the, as like you say, as long as you avoid uh, the weed and feed products uh, and just stick with the feed products, you're okay. 
That's true. And actually, this year we did put on a lawn fertilizer. Uh, we went out and purchased, uh, we needed some more for the lawn itself. And so I thought, well, let me look for one that uh, is high in nitrogen, but has a little uh, phosphorus and potassium, a little P and K in there. And that'll be good for the berry plants. We also, uh, in addition, grow uh, boysenberries as well. And so I needed uh, something that uh, we could uh, do uh, for those as well. And then we can just use the same old thing on our citrus and our um, apple tree and everything else. Uh, One fertilizer makes it a lot easier. Raspberries, uh, harvest time is when and uh, how do you harvest them and how long can you store them? Well, the berries, uh, this particular variety, now remember, these are... um, these are the two crop variety and a lot of people may grow raspberries that only produce a spring crop. This one also produces the fall crop. It's heritage, right? Heritage is the one that uh, you can find in the nurseries now. And it's, it's pretty much everywhere. I think they sell it all over the United States. That particular variety then will start bearing a crop in uh, late May, early June, and we'll get a pretty good crop then. In fact, actually, it might even be mid-May this year. It looks like some of the uh, flowers are getting pretty well developed already at the ends. Now, this is a, a flower fruiting cycle where these are the old canes from last year that were cut down. And then the uh, new growth that you see here is all from last year. As soon as these bear here in an, about another month or month and a half or so, then they are going to die back. And then all the new canes arising from below that are going to come up, they're going to produce then a fall crop. And I will say that it's kind of unpredictable, but most of the time our, quote, fall crop, and I should say fall with quotes around it because really the crop starts in August and it'll go till uh, Thanksgiving easily in our area, unless we get a really cold snap. So when that stem has produced berries, that stem should be removed? We usually wait until it starts to look really dead and looks like it's not productive at all. And and then we, yes, uh, cut it out. And the reason is, is we used to just leave them, but uh, we found out that we had that mite problem when we had a little bit of drought stress. And we found that if it's uh, too crowded, you don't get the air circulation, the leaves get dusty and dry and mites love that. And we just found that it was easier just to remove it, open it up and, and get rid of it. And then it left a lot of opportunity for the rest of the canes to come up and grow. And then they, those come up, then they fruit and uh, we get a, a great crop. I say the heaviest crop is mid-August to the end of September, uh, a great crop. And I put up a lot of uh, jam, so uh, my husband has to pick. He he does all the picking. I I do all the putting up. Uh, My husband calls himself the gardener. I'm the horticulturist. We used to work together on a lot of this stuff, but now uh, he's got me in the kitchen, you know, putting all this stuff up. He then will harvest about every five days because if you don't, Two things will happen. The fruit will get soft and mushy, and then it'll stop producing. But the soft and mushy attracts a fruit fly that goes to our cherry trees as well here. And we haven't had a real problem the last few years if you're really careful with keeping it up. But uh, sometimes if you let that uh, particular fruit fly uh, go wild here, uh, it will uh, infest the fruit with unknown little white maggots until you're making your jam and all of a sudden there they are. So, and especially the fall crop. So we have to be really careful and really religious about getting rid of any fruit that's too soft or decayed or whatever. And picking the raspberries, can you pluck them or do you have to cut them? No, in these, you just pull right off. 
they pull off very easily and uh, not a not a problem at all. And in fact, when we uh, get down to the boysenberries, same thing. Uh, you can just pull them right right off. You don't have to cut anything. They're very easy to pick. They're not too. I mean, they're a little bit thorny, but or, you know, a little bit of prickles on them, but not too bad. What does Mike the gardener use to uh, store the raspberries as he's picking them? Does he have a big bag or is he just no, carrying well, a bucket? So what I do is um, I like them because uh, to be in a colander. And so I have a lot of large metal colanders and some plastic colanders. That way there's more broad surface area. He brings them into the house then. And I kind of uh, make sure that they are well distributed because I put them in the refrigerator. And actually raspberries have a very, very long refrigerator life. Uh, they can easily stay in a refrigerator without having to put them up to do anything with them for five to seven days and not see any decay or anything as long as you've picked them without already having a problem with a soft fruit. I try to get to them, though, and put them up if I can within about two to three days. But if something happens and I get a little behind, it's really producing heavily. I can leave some of them in there. It works out really well, actually. Anything else you want to mention about raspberries? Well, I think uh, raspberries are pretty easy to grow. And they're easy to prune and take care of. Um, they produce a beautiful crop and make fabulous jam. Uh, you just have to be uh, careful to attention for making sure you mulch, making sure that they don't ever have, suffer any kind of a drought, uh, keep them irrigated evenly without too much water. They are sensitive to root rot. And we have our soil is a heavy clay soil, and we do have a type of phytophthora in our soil that does infect our raspberries occasionally. And we then, uh, I've had it actually identified at a state lab to make sure. So what we do is we just make sure that we pull those out occasionally. And, and then I, I really watch the irrigation, make sure that we're not keeping it too wet or whatever. But we're still going to get a little bit of it because it's in our soil. And you've got a heavy clay soil, and even just normal spring or winter rains or whatever keeps the soil wet. And as soon as that fungus gets active, then you have to be careful uh, not to keep it too wet. And, and so it's kind of walking a little bit of a fine line there with the irrigation. But otherwise, they're pretty carefree. Once a year, fertilization is it and the pruning doesn't take much time. And I highly recommend raspberries. They're, they're fabulous and they taste really good. Well, let's walk over to the uh, other berries and, and, and see what's growing. We're at Pam Bone's house here in Sacramento County. Pam Bone is a famous Sacramento County Master Gardener. In fact, she's the original Sacramento County Master Gardener, by the way. And Pam has cultivated a growing passion of hers for over 40 years. Pam loves berries. When we come back, Pam explains how to grow, train, and irrigate boysenberries. You're listening to The Garden Basics, 2022's Greatest Hits, Part 2. pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this podcast. My criteria, though, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, and a product I would buy again. And you know who checks all those boxes? It's Smart Pots. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Smart Pots are sold around the world, and they're proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots come in a wide array of sizes and colors and can be reused year after year. Some models even have handles, and that makes them a lot easier to move around the yard. Because the fabric breathes, Smart Pots are better suited than plastic pots, especially for hot climates. That breathable fabric has other benefits, too. 
Water drainage issues? Not with Smart Pots. Roots that go round and round, choking the root ball like they do in plastic pots? Doesn't happen with Smart Pots. These benefits will help you get a bigger, better plant than what you've gotten in the past with the same size plastic or other hard container. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers as well as select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. F-R-E-D. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash FRED for more information about the complete line of Smart Pot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount, Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We are at Pam Bones' house here in Sacramento County, where they have developed a yard for over 40 years, and Pam loves berries. Pam, it's almost like Knott's Berry Farm here. You've got boysenberries here. Yes. I come from Washington State. My husband comes from Oregon State, and you have to grow berries, raspberries, boysenberries, whatever. Boysenberries are just ideal for making pies, and I make a lot of pies. They make a wonderful jam, and of course, they're delicious for fresh eating as well. And they love our Sacramento climate. Ah, so does that mean that in a state like Washington, they wouldn't do well? No, they do great there, too. They love it there. They do just as fine. So uh, you just have to decide, do you have the... the sun for them. They just like full sun and they do really well uh, in that. They uh, are very adaptable, actually. Describe the trellis that you've designed for them. Years ago, we had a massive system with the big wooden crossbars on it and the ones that you see commercially and all. And it's a pretty daunting thing. To, and it takes a lot of uh, time and energy to install. And it's uh, expensive. And uh, one day we had a massive tree fall and literally destroy our entire berry patch here, including the crossbars. And so we decided, you know what, we're going to do this a little easier. And we're going to use these T-bars, these metal T-bars with wires, and it works just beautifully. It holds them nicely. We've got uh, T-bars spaced out so that you've got uh, not too much tension on the wire, you know, too much stress on the wires here. And then uh, we've got uh, the three wire system so that the berries can be trained in three different locations and and, uh, tied on with little twisty ties. And then we use kind of a barrel method, uh, sort of where you, you come up from the base of the plant and then you go onto one of the wires and train the branches, sometimes as a barrel loop, if you've got a long enough cane and they loop around, gives a little more maximum sun exposure for the uh, plant. But yeah, these T-bars just work really, really well. They stay in the soil nicely and uh, they you can see they're they turn in just a little on the edges just because some of the tension's uh, late in the season. But you can twist the wire a little bit uh, tighter and, and uh, it works great. And it's inexpensive, easy to do, and not so daunting. For you technically minded at home, the T-bars the are spaced about 8 to 10 feet apart. And there's a three-wire system on here that looks like it begins about 18 inches above the ground. And the next two wires are also spaced by another 18 inches. And so the, the total height of this is maybe four and a half to five feet. 
Uh, yes, and then um, some of the berries later in the season, then they'll stick up a little bit further and they'll lop over just a bit. But uh, otherwise, this contains them pretty nicely, actually. Uh, you can see that we do have some canes that are growing past the uh, wires, but uh, for the most part, it works well for us. If you've got a, a really, really vigorous uh, canes growing, then you might want to make a little bit taller. And, and a little bit more uh, support on the ends as well. Exactly. That's true, too. If they get really heavy and, and uh, laden down, then the wires then sag and, and that. And we get a little bit of that. But, gosh, it's a really inexpensive, easy way to do it. And, uh, and, and if for some reason you had to move it or adjust things or whatever, it's easy to do. Uh, this whole thing with the big wooden crossbars and people putting them in concrete and whatever else they do, it's... Oh, it's like digging a fence and, and uh, I don't know, a permanent structure may not be what you need to have. How do you care for boysenberries then? What are the watering requirements, the fertilization and the pruning requirements? Well, as far as watering goes, uh, they need uh, regular irrigation, at least uh, once a week irrigation. We have a drip irrigation system using the inline emitters in rows down the berries themselves. Uh, we have three lines on each of the rows, so uh, we encompass most of the root system. And then we want to make sure that we run that drip irrigation as long as uh water is flowing down into the root system. We want it to go down in as far as we can, uh, which is going to be at least 18, you know, 12 to 18 inches is where most of those roots are contained. So you want to make sure that you run the irrigation long enough. I will say that I uh, find that most people do not run their drip irrigation long enough and they just dribble out a little bit of water. Then you get a very shallow root system. And what happens if you have a dry spell, uh, you forget to water something happens or whatever, then uh, the plants are really suffer. So watering is really critical. Uh, the other thing that uh, we do is we put on a lot of uh, wood chips. Um, we get a lot of arborist wood chips that are delivered to us and put that on. And then we always top dress with compost. Uh, we have a lot of compost piles. We have a lot of uh, oak trees and other uh, trees that produce leaves. And plus, of course, I save all my kitchen scraps and that. And uh, that compost then makes a wonderful top dressing. It doesn't completely eliminate fertilization, but it helps to give you a little bit of uh, nutrition as well as uh, keeping the soil moist and cool and uh, helping to uh, mitigate uh, uh, soil fluctuations in temperatures. And then it's going to help with your watering as well. So fertilizing then about uh, once a year, already did it Um just a few weeks ago, just as the growth is starting uh, up in uh, usually early March, uh, then we go in with uh, an all-purpose fertilizer or in our case uh, this year and in years past, uh, we often just get a, an all-purpose lawn fertilizer, high in nitrogen, which these berries need, and but it still gives you a little bit of phosphorus and potassium. But uh, nitrogen, people don't realize that you've got to have the uh, growth in order to produce flowers and uh, fruits. And the fact that we're putting on a lot of mulch and a lot of 
uh, compost on top, and that the soil in our area isn't real deficient in phosphorus and potassium, you don't need very much of it. You're going to get it from your mulch and your compost a little bit anyhow. So the nitrogen's the one thing that is transitory. You put it on and it flows right out with your waters. And you got to be careful not to overwater or you'll lose your nitrogen. So nitrogen's real important that it be put on annually for all fruits, whether they're uh, bushes or vines or uh, fruit trees. Always a good idea to have your soil tested before you do any planting so you know exactly what your soil needs. There are a couple of inexpensive uh, university-related soil testing sites that'll be glad to take your $20 and send you back a soil test report. One is uh, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and the other is Colorado State University. If you look up uh, either of those universities and put in the words uh, soil test, uh, you'll get the uh, details on how to go about that. And they're fairly complete soil tests, too, so that is a inexpensive option. Of course, you can always soil test for macronutrients and pH yourself. Uh, you can buy, find those kits at any garden center or nursery. But yeah, know your soil before you plant anything. Are the uh, boysenberries like raspberries, once a branch produces, it's done? Yes. And in fact, in this case, because um, our raspberries, I was saying earlier, are uh, fall bears or ever bears, people call them because they produce two crops. This produces one crop. Uh, we get a crop in June and then that's it. And then those berries, as soon as they start to really dry back and look kind of crispy, you just remove them. Then the new canes are all coming up from the base of the plant and we let them just sprawl on the ground uh, while the others are dying back. Then we take them out and at some point then put the uh, new ones up onto the trellis. All right. Boysenberries, and what do you do with them? When do you harvest them? Harvesting is in June in our area. Um, basically, uh, they're pretty much finished by the 4th of July. We can usually count on the last crop just about then, and they will start producing about the first week of June. And uh, you can just, you just come out and pick them. You pick them with your fingers. You don't have to use any kind of pruning equipment or anything like that. You just pluck them off, and they store very nicely in a colander in the refrigerator, and I make a lot of pies and jam with them, and uh, we eat them fresh and just love them. They're great. I Boysenberries are one of the most versatile berries and do well in a variety of climates as long as you have. They actually will tolerate the sun even better than raspberries. Full sun. They, they don't do well in the shade as far as, oh, they'll produce a lot of vine, but who wants that? And then you do have to, one thing with uh, boysenberries, like any blackberry, because they're a type of blackberry, is that uh, they will send up uh, errant blackberries and you can get the blackberry mess if you're not careful uh, where the patch gets overgrown. So just go out there and uh, make sure you tidy up the rows occasionally and, and dig out those ones. Otherwise, we don't find them becoming the jungle at all unless you're just not keeping up with it. Are there boysenberry varieties? Boysenberry is a variety of blackberry. So there are nectar berries, which uh, some people say boysenberries and nectar berries are the same. There are Logan berries. There are Alala berries. These are all uh, types of berries that were developed from a blackberry. And then there are lots of just blackberries that are not crosses, but have been um, also genetically uh, grown to produce different varieties of uh, blackberries. So uh, you can just get an ordinary blackberry. These are a, a larger berry, a little bit softer berry. I like them because I think they're better for pies and that. Uh, we did grow uh, regular blackberries as well. 
but found um, they weren't to my satisfaction for uh, baking with them and making jam. So we took them out and put in more boysenberries. How daunting are the thorns on these? You know, back in the day when we first put these in, the thornless berries didn't produce very well. They were not very good varieties. Now, I understand from a lot of growers and from the master gardeners that grow these at our Fair Oaks Horticulture Center that a lot of the thornless varieties are excellent now and do produce well. So we put in thorny varieties and they're not that bad. I will say when we're tying them up, oftentimes you have to put tape or something on your fingers to prevent yourself from just getting little prickles into your uh, fingers, but uh, they're not that bad and they just produce so well. It is a little hard to be tying branches uh, up to wires when you're wearing thick uh, goat gloves. You can't do that. That's the problem. And so doing something, and actually what works actually pretty well now, and I found that I like these, is just the little thin latex gloves you use for just clean up around the house and that. Uh, They actually work pretty well for being able to tie with those. And then you can replace them and they're cheap. There you go. That's a good quick tip. We are in the boysenberry patch at Pam Bone's house. It's uh, It looks to be very delicious. He said punnily. Thank you, Pam. Thank you very much, Fred. I enjoy uh, sharing my crop with you. If after listening to our discussion about raspberries and boysenberries, you're still uncertain how to trellis these fruits, we have links in today's show notes that offer more information as well as diagrams and pictures. The information about trellising berries is from three different universities, including the University of California, Pennsylvania State, and Cornell. Again, you can find these links in today's show notes. weather may not be perfect for outdoor gardening right now, but it's perfect for planning your 2023 garden. Now's the time to plan the what and the where of what you want to plant for the future. And to help you along, it pays to visit your favorite independently owned nursery on a regular basis throughout the fall and winter just to see what's new. And coming soon to that nursery near you is Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites. Great tasting, healthy fruit and nut varieties. They'll already be potted up and ready to be planted. And we're also talking about a great selection of antioxidant-rich fruits, such as blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, goji berries, grapes, kiwi, mulberries, gooseberries, figs, and pomegranates. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great tasting fruit and nut trees of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you can find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. You've heard of no-till gardening, How about no-dig gardening or creating a lasagna garden? Emily Murphy, author of the book Grow Now, will explain. You're listening to the Garden Basics Podcast, Greatest Hits of 2022, Part 2. In a couple of recent podcast episodes, we talked with Emily Murphy. She's the author of the book Grow Now. Among the topics we covered included regenerative gardening and knowing your nature quotient, how better to understand the rhythms of your plants and how they grow and everything that interacts with the life of your plants, and that includes your soil. 
Because as we're fond of saying here, a healthy soil leads to healthier plants. And one technique to improve the health of your soil is to forego rototilling, which does more damage than good to the underground biology of your soil. It's a technique called no-till, a practice that has taken hold in the world of agriculture, especially among producers of organic crops. But the practice of no-till isn't just for your bare ground. In this chat with Emily Murphy, she explains how this technique, keeping your soil undisturbed as much as possible, can be applied to your raised beds and container plants. She calls it no-dig. And she talks about a way to build your soil without having to purchase bags or yards of potting mix. It's called lasagna gardening. And the other, the other way to tackle no-dig is, is not just by growing in the ground, but it's also to uh, use uh, no-dig techniques in raised beds and containers. The idea there is that instead of sourcing soil, say for a raised bed, a larger bed, the, the typical rule of thumb is to use 50-50 compost to um, topsoil. That's kind of the general rule of thumb for filling raised beds. Uh, that's fine. Oftentimes, soil is sourced from places that have been excavated for building sites and whatnot. So it's it's already getting moved. But you know, when you think about it, soil does have to come from somewhere and it's disturbing soil somewhere else where it's then when it's excavated, releases carbon to the atmosphere, disturbs that soil ecosystem, which is valuable to wherever that soil came from. Instead of moving soil from one place to another also takes a lot of fossil fuels, right, to move a heavy load of soil. Instead, we can compost in place and use lasagna gardening or culture, which is a, a German word for layering organic matter in place, sort of in situ, and planting in that. And I show how to do that and grow now. It's a really simple technique. It's the same technique I use to fill my raised beds. If anyone follows me on social media, you'll see the garden that I uh, built a year ago this month, and I filled them with this lasagna gardening technique, and it's composting sticks and twigs on the bottom. So you have your layer of browns, layer of greens, layer of browns, and I save the fine compost for the um, top Um, I did have to bring in compost because it was a new yard, new garden, and uh, I didn't have time to make any, but I sourced it locally. I'm really lucky. I have uh, West Marin compost. It's not far from here. It's about a mile away. I saved that fine compost for the soil surface and planted in it. And three months later, I had this incredible start of summer garden and you can plant intensively and it's so, so simple and so empowering. The technique, technique, you're right. Okay, you don't want to wag your finger at someone and say, don't do that. I agree. But at the same time, wow, what a what a gift to be given to these techniques. Make it so easy and and, and immediately get, get you off on the right foot towards success. In those raised beds, do you even have to fertilize the plants? You know, I didn't. I, I didn't. And the only thing I do is I add this last year, I didn't I added compost to a few places. Otherwise, I put in a cover crop of fava beans um, where I wasn't growing greens. Uh, I will add a layer of compost with manures in it uh, this spring. And I'm in the process of doing that. I'm a little behind because of um, the re- release of Grow Now. Grow Now came out February 1st. And as you can imagine, it's been 
a wild ride with the bookmaking and with anything in your garden, you have to prioritize. You don't have time for everything. And I've decided to focus on, since I have the garden, the veggie garden in place, I decided to put most of my attention towards the rewilding project out front, knowing that I can get to the veggie garden with time because I'm in California and the growing season so long. Exactly. Yes, indeed. Well, the benefits of uh, just keeping applying the mulch like you do, as it breaks down, it feeds the soil. And if it's one thing I say a lot on this podcast, uh, you're not feeding plants, you're feeding the soil, which in turn will feed the plants. And Absolutely. That's exactly what I say as well. And that's what I say in Grow Now. You're really feeding the soil ecosystem, which you'll read and grow now, part of the regenerative process is not just supporting biodiversity, but really beginning this decadal process of uh, pulling carbon from the atmosphere underground. What uh, One of the studies I found so interesting when I uh, started writing Grow Now was the study out of UC Davis. It was a 20-year study looking at the reality of sequestering carbon underground. Can we really do it? Is it does it really work? Uh, do regenerative practices work to sequester carbon and sequester carbon at depth and sequester stable carbon. And they found over this 20-year study, yes, it does. And they found, yes, keeping living roots in the ground, um, which is a tenet of regenerative growing as well uh, with the use of cover crops is vitally important. And that supports biodiversity. It, it keeps living roots in the ground and, and those roots feed the soil as well through the root exudates, which is a big term, but it's described and grown out. But more importantly, it was the application of compost, of feeding the soil compost that really drove this carbon sequestration process. And what the writers of the research said was they said that it could even be a half an inch to an inch of compost over a landscape that has the power to sequester carbon. And when we when we approach our landscapes then with this layer of compost and a no-dig approach, we're able to maintain those carbon stores underground uh, in a stable fashion for, for many, many years. Now it can take time. It's, a, again, a decadal process, but it's possible. And the benefits are immediate because when we feed the soil, we're again, we're feeding, we're feeding the biodiversity in the soil and the soil ecology, which then feeds our plants, helps us grow gardens much easier. Soil is doing much of the work for us, keep, keeping our plants resilient and feeds the, the ecology above the ground in, in many ways because there's this feed forward loop. So I would imagine, uh, it, since you talked about lasagna gardening, that this compost layer goes on top of your soil and then you're covering that with some sort of mulch in order to keep, uh, say, flying wheezy, weed seeds from germinating in that very fine compost. Absolutely. And the type of mulch you use depends upon what you plan to grow. So we were talking about rules of thumb earlier. The typical rule of thumb with the mulch you choose is is based upon what it is you're growing. So if you're if you're growing trees and shrubs, particularly native trees and shrubs, the idea is to mulch with uh, materials that are similar to that are you know mulch that's made up of materials that are similar to the plants you're growing. And so it can be more woody debris, leaves, as as the primary source of of compost making or mulch making. But with a veggie garden, you want to use a compost that is, or for a veggie garden, when you're prepping for a veggie garden, you want to use a, a compost that is more in keeping with the plants you're going to grow again. So a compost that's been made out of kitchen scraps, for instance, or kitchen scraps and leaves and other organic materials that have a compost that has been fed kitchen scraps. 
And I, I think that's a pretty easy uh, parallel to follow when you're considering, well, which type of mulch should I use? And that's one place to start. And of course, whatever's local is also a really good place to start. Yeah, if it, if, exactly. If, yes. If, if you can source it in your own garden or your neighbor's garden, if your neighbor has leaves, wonderful. Use those leaves. Which is why I use the oak leaves that fall every November and December in my neighborhood and, and grind them up either with my mower or with a string trimmer and place those on top of my raised beds for the winter. But before I put those leaves down, I put down a layer of worm castings directly on top of the soil and then top that with the oak leaf uh, mulch that's been uh, ground up. And you talk about in your book, too, in the book Grow Now, you talk about vermicomposting, basically making that compost you're talking about via the worms with a worm bin and also great instructions on even starting a compost pile as well. Now, you mentioned earlier that people can follow you on social media. We need to know where. Yeah, uh, people can find me, Emily Murphy, at Pass the Pistol, and that's P-I-S-T-I-L as in part of a flower. That's the name of my website, PassThePistol.com. And I'm primarily on Twitter and Instagram and um, sometimes on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, too. Um, I do have some Pinterest boards, uh, but I spend most of my time on Instagram and Twitter uh, talking about all of these these topics of growing and the power of growing and the benefits of growing, not just for our gardens, but for ourselves and uh, for growing resilient communities and uh, eventually then a resilient planet and a place for, for ourselves and our families and our children's children to enjoy and appreciate. And we should point out that the pistil you refer to, the P-I-S-T-I-L, is the female part of the flower. That's right. That's right. That was the play on words. My husband and I, years ago, when I started my blog, that's how I started. I thought, okay, I, I want to write a book one day. And to write a book, I have to start writing. And I, I started my blog for that reason, to give to give myself a, a, a challenge or the goal of, of writing something every week so I could improve as a writer. We We were trying to think of, okay, if I were to have a blog, what would I name my blog? And it went back to, and I talk about this in my bio in my website, it went back to something my mom would say that I can't say on your podcast. It was uh, bleep or get off the pot. Yeah. And it was her, her way of saying, you know, if you're going to do something, just do it, just get to it. And I had been thinking about really wanting to return to growing. I, you know, I'd studied uh, ethnobotany, botany as I mentioned earlier, but I spent a number of years after college teaching and I was a classroom teacher and I, I reached a point where I really missed working with plants more directly. I loved being a teacher. I learned so much from it. I think my years as a classroom teacher, um, I taught everything from eighth grade math and science to multi-age classrooms. But I, I, I think that those years as a teacher uh, really helped me take so many ideas and distill them into one book. And Grow Now is so full of a wide range of ideas and not just the how to, but the why to. And I think that does come from my my background. But um, but there was a time when I realized it wasn't enough and I'd had to get back to the plant world. And that's when I started my blog and I studied garden design. I went to the California School of Garden Design in the foothills uh, near Auburn, California, and learned so much there. And that was really my launch point. But 
pass the pistol was my way of saying, okay, get to it, get to it now. If you're going to do it, you really want to do it, just do it and start somewhere. And this is how it evolved. Uh, Grow what you love and pass it on. So grow what you love and pass the pistol, pass the flower and all that you grow and share it with others. Emily Murphy, the author of the book Grow Now, has been with us. We've, we've covered a lot of topics, and there you can find more information in her latest book, Grow Now, available wherever you find your books. Emily, thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. Yeah, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. In this Friday's Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter, we cover a topic as current as the recent weather rain, lots of rain, and your garden. We have a list of do's and don'ts for thwarting pests that become more active with the rain and also caring for your waterlogged garden soil. And in the podcast portion of the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter, we get tips from a noted landscape designer on how to drain excess water away from your home and garden. For current newsletter subscribers, look for the Too Much Rain newsletter in your email. It's probably waiting for you now. Or you can start a subscription. By the way, it's free. Find the link in today's show notes or sign up at the newsletter link at our homepage, gardenbasics.net. I hope you enjoyed today's second episode of four in a row, the top 10 most listened to segments of the Garden Basics podcast with Farmer Fred that aired during 2022. Next Friday, we'll have information in Part 3 on how to start your very first garden, which includes tips for longtime gardeners, too, just in case you move and you have to start over with a garden, because we'll have tips that you may never have even considered when establishing a garden. Also, we'll have information on how to reuse old potting soil. And then in the fourth and final part of our 2022 Greatest Hits, this will be in two weeks, we feature myself and America's favorite retired college horticulture professor, Deb flower with tips for getting ready for your spring garden. It was recorded in front of a live garden club audience. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast comes out once a week on Fridays. Plus, the newsletter podcast that comes with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter continues, and that will also be released on Fridays. Both are free, and they're brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. The Garden Basics podcast is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes our homepage, gardenbasics.net. And that's where you can also sign up for the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast. That's Garden Basics. Basics.net, or you can use the links in today's show notes. And thank you so much for listening.